Good evening, you guys. We're going to get started. We are going to be in 1 Thessalonians, which is right after Colossians, in case you're wondering. Yeah, I had to go re-listen to the song. All right, y'all doing all right this week? Y'all are the well ones. Everyone else is sick, so congratulations on that. That's an accomplishment. Nice. Well, let's pray and we'll jump right into it. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word in the middle of the week, to stop, to, to maybe regain some traction and um, to gain a, uh, a biblical uh, perspective. Uh, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Patrick, you want to grab those two doors real quick? All right. We're in First Thessalonians tonight. What was... The main point of Galatians, faith. What was the main point of Ephesians? One at a time. Yes, yeah, there was a, yeah, grace, yeah, we're going for, I'm trying to keep it simple. The goal when this is over is from Galatians to Revelation, you can say what it is. And so we're working on it. It takes time, but it's worth it. Repetition is effective. Repetition is effective. Repetition is effective. So Galatians is what? Faith. Faith. Ephesians is? Grace. Philippians is? Humility. Humility. And Colossians is what? That was last week. The freshest one. Yeah. What? New life, that's correct. Tonight, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Does anyone want to guess uh, what, what the main theme is in 1 Thessalonians? Want to take a crack at it? The second coming. Boom, boom, boom. Right? On the edge of your seat. I actually read through it twice and thought, I'm going to try to guess what the theme is. And I wasn't even close to the second coming. So uh, it's interesting when you hear and read someone else's uh, uh, take on something. This is the book that we're utilizing for these studies. He has an Old Testament one, which is called Promises Made. And this is the New Testament one by Mark Dever called Promises Kept. If you haven't seen this and you want to dig a little deeper or know where we're getting our notes each week, largely what I do is I take all of his chapters and I'll crunch them down into two pages that are a little more teachable. Somehow he preached one message, on um, one message on each book of the Bible, on each Sunday, for like, you know, sixty-six weeks. I have no idea how he did it. I want to go back and listen to him at some point because some of these are like, how did you get through thirty pages of notes before you pre in in your preaching uh, in one Sunday? So I'm not real sure how he did it, uh, but it, that that is how um, we are uh, shaping our Wednesday night studies. And so, um, no point in reinventing the wheel. He, he's really smart and has some really great points. But yeah, tonight's focus is on the second coming. We're going to consider um, that in, the, in this book. It was likely written about A.D. 51 from Corinth. So here's some background, a little overview. The overview of the overview. A.D. 51 from Corinth. And the situation is, I, I just kind of want to read this introduction because... On this one, there's some background from Acts 16 and 17, 
and some, from something called the Macedonian Call. And it was very important. And really, Acts 16 and 17 gives us a lot of the background for what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians while it was written from Paul while he was in Corinth. So I wanted to read this to, to make some connections. Um, study in 1 Thessalonians. The letter was probably written about 8051 from Corinth and was either the first or second letter Paul wrote. Galatians may have been earlier. The situation for writing the letter was basically this. This is the background. You've got to kind of climb in and consider what, what, what's going on here. Paul had made what we call his first missionary journey in southern Turkey, and now he's on his second missionary journey. He intended simply to revisit the churches that he had planted on his first journey and then travel to what today is northern Turkey. So the plan for the second journey was go revisit the churches we first planted in, in south Turkey and then just head on up to north Turkey. Before traveling northward, however, he had the famous vision of the Macedonian man saying, come and help us from Acts 16.9. God was calling Paul over to Macedonia and Greece to spread the gospel. Now, when Paul answered that missionary call, history was changed. It was a very, very significant thing when Paul answered the call to go over to Macedonia and Greece. <coughs> the gospel of Christianity went from Asia to Europe for the first time when he answered that call. Paul traveled first to Philippi, a port city, and then he proceeded west on the main east-west road that eventually reaches Rome to the chief city of Macedonia, Thessalonica. Thessalonica was founded in 316 BC, so 316 years uh, before Christ, and was named, does anyone, anyone know this? We got some weird history buffs in this room. Does anyone know who Thessalonica was named after? No? I guess you would have known it immediately. There's no point in waiting to see if anybody can, who was that? Yeah. It was at, named after Thessala, that's correct. No, it was named after Thessalonica, who was uh, the sister of Alexander the Great, so what was going on in the situation in that in the area was Alexander the Great had these great conquests, was expanding the empire, and it was believed that Macedonia needed a new and a more prominent city, given its enhanced place in the world. So Thessalonica was built for the sake of having a new and enhanced city that showed the greatness of Alexander the Great by having a city named after his sister. If you follow the story of Paul's first visit to Thessalonica in Acts 17. You find he was there for only a few weeks, at most maybe a couple months, before he was run out of town. So we're not, the reason I'm giving you this background is because we would have had to go all and read a bunch of Acts 16 and 17 to understand this and weave it together. So our background for 1 Thessalonians is Acts 17. He was run out of town. Still, his time in Thessalonica may have been his most immediately successful evangelistic tour up to that point. We read in Acts 17, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Yet he actually encountered persecution, and he was smuggled out of uh, the town at night. He went on to Berea, Athens, and Corinth, but none of these places, in none of these places did the gospel receive the same positive response it had received in Thessalonica. Always this band of new Christians was on Paul's mind. It was, they were precious to him. He had planted this church. He had to leave before he was kind of done with all the foundational stuff, and they were very precious to him. When he finally thought it was safe, he sent one of his trusted workers, Timothy, to check on the young church. After a short absence, Timothy caught up with Paul at Corinth and gave him the news that the Thessalonian church had survived and it was doing quite well. 
It remained a young church, however, and had its share of problems. After all, Paul had been basically interrupted mid-lesson in Thessalonica. He had never finished teaching the basic matters of Christianity, and the church's foundations were not complete and solid. Several strange problems had grown up, uh, had grown up after his premature departure. Apparently, some individuals in Thessalonica opposed this new religion by accusing Paul of being a money-grubbing self-promoter. What they said was that as soon as the circumstances got bad, he just bailed and snuck out of town. So one challenge that he has with this church in Thessalonica is a bunch of people who ran him out of town said he just left on his own because things got difficult, and he just was a money-grubber, and he was a self-promoter, and he was a, a smooth talker, and he just wanted people to follow his, his new and interesting teaching. The second problem were doctrinal issues. The Thessalonians worried that if a Christian died before Christ returned, he or she would be lost forever because they didn't understand this whole thing about the second coming, which is why it is a theme that is kind of laced throughout 1 Thessalonians. So the, uh, the main points that I want us to see are Paul planted a church, was persecuted, run out of town, and wanted to go back and visit it to lay a proper foundation. This letter helps to do that. He sent Timothy to see how things were going, and they were going quite well. This was his most successful evangelistic tour, which is interesting because it kind of tells us the way that God does things and the way that his word is powerful, even when maybe we haven't gotten to speak it exactly how we hoped we could, because this church that he got interrupted in the planting process ended up being one of the most fruitful and effective and faithful in its earliest days. He was accused of being a money-grubbing self-promoter, so we'll, we'll hear in 1 Thessalonians a little bit of Paul saying, hey, let's remember what actually happened. Let's, let's remember what I did while I was there. And then the, next, the, last, the last thing is that um, addressing this doctrinal issue of Christians dying before Christ's return because they didn't understand that because he hadn't gotten to that part yet. They knew that Christ was coming back, but they worried about what happens if Christians die before Christ comes back because it was something that they were anticipating as could be any minute. Uh, one other little detail. This is Paul's most autobiographical letter. So who likes lists? Does anyone like lists in here? List people? I love making lists. I'll have a, like a to-do list, and if I come across something new that I need to do, and I do it in that moment, I will go back to my to-do list, write it down, and put a check in the blog, because it lets me have a good grasp on whatever that moment of awesomeness was. So if you like lists, uh, this is a, a, a good study for you, because... What happens in this very short letter is Paul shows seven signs of genuine ministry and eight signs of a Christian life. Just boom, boom, boom. List of seven, list of eight. Before we get to the lists, we're going to look at Paul's prayers. Look at 1-1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our, lab remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, apparently, because he got interrupted and it still did its work. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in 2.13 it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What does Paul thank God for in these verses? These verses in particular, what do you see Paul thanking God for? If you could sum it up in one word, what would it be? One word or a short phrase. For their faithfulness. Yeah, faithfulness in the gospel. Yeah, steadfastness. We kind of see a focus a little bit on the past here in the prayer. And the past is... God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for making these people faithful. Thank you for letting the word be so powerful in their lives. Um, The past and what God has done is a focus of his prayers. And then look at 310. These prayers, we're going to see what, I'm going to ask after I read this, what does Paul pray for here? 310 says, as we prayed most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Then he says in 523, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what is Paul praying for here in these verses? Sanctification. An increase in abundance of love? What else? That he would be able to be with them? Yep. See him face to face? Yeah, we see a focus on the past in some of the prayers, but then we see a focus on the future. God, I pray for the future. I pray that you would sanctify them. I pray that you would give me an opportunity to be with them. I pray that there would be growth and love for, for one another and for others. We see in these prayers a model set for us that we focus on the past and we focus on the future in our prayers. We don't lose sight of what God has done, and we don't stop anticipating and considering what God might do. So here he prays for the future for himself. He prays for himself that he would be bold. He prays for the Thessalonians' love and holiness to increase and that they would grow in hope. Dever has a note here and says, Paul knows that in order for the Thessalonians to live differently than the world, as well as differently from their own pasts, they must have a different hope. They have to have a different goal in life one that will inspire them to endure in faith. So if you're thinking about how do I pray for someone if I hope that they're not affected by the world around them that is godless, 
And how can I pray for them if they have history that they need to overcome? This is a great example for us in how to pray uh, for hope for other people. Look again at 110. I already read it once. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The image of waiting is a really great image to meditate on. What is the opposite of a waiting life? He tells them, you guys need to have a waiting sort of life. What's the opposite of a waiting life? Moving forward in your own strength? Being impatient? Not at peace? Would you say that our culture is a waiting culture? Okay, well, why not? Amazon. Yeah. Immediate gratification. Yeah. They have drones that will deliver stuff to your door like within hours. It's insane. And what happens when we don't get what we ordered? Oh, man. Yeah. Well, what else is indicative of a, of a culture that doesn't wait? How does it affect our time? How does it affect our money? How does it affect um, our view of family? Yeah. Yeah. We never feel like there's enough time. We never feel like there's enough money. I mean, do we... Something to always remember when we study things like this in the Bible is when we complain about having enough time, about not having enough time, we're saying to the creator of time, you screwed up. You didn't make enough. You messed up. And it messes up every one of my days because every one of my days only has 24 hours. And I'm so busy that I need 28 every single day. It's a, like complaining about not having enough time is like complaining about the weather. You complain about the weather. You're looking at God and saying, this was a stupid idea. It's, it's really quite foolish when we consider our humanness and some of the complaints that we have when it comes to waiting. So here's my question. What were Paul and the Thessalonians waiting on? So if we were supposed to have a waiting life, what are we waiting on? The return of the Lord. And what, is all, what does that all entail? A life of waiting. Enduring, yeah, what are we enduring? Life, a life of enduring is enduring life. That's brilliant. Impatience, say that again. Persecution. What are some other things we're looking forward to not being an issue anymore? Sin. Yeah. Yeah, impatience, frustration, disappointment. Yeah, I mean, we are awaiting people because we know that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's taking us with him. And so it's interesting that they're such a young church, but of all the things they grabbed onto regarding their salvation, that was the main thing. Jesus is coming back. This affects things. Jesus is coming back. What if someone dies before Jesus comes back? That is the way that this young community was anticipating the return of Christ. That was the way this community was identified as, as waiting. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, this picture of waiting helps us to understand the message that Paul's bringing to them and the situation that they're in. So Paul has a recollection of genuine ministry among 
the Thessalonians in this letter. Here's seven signs of genuine ministry, and we are going to start covering some ground. Seven signs of genuine ministry. If you're writing them down, you'll have enough time to write them down, and that's about it. One is self-sacrifice. One, the first sign of genuine ministry to other people is self-sacrifice. In 2, 1 through 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And then in verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul shared the gospel at a cost to himself. Genuine ministry. He shared the gospel at a cost to himself. Paul was willing to sacrifice his own popularity. Look at 2.9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He sacrificed his popularity. Paul was willing to make his own money in order not to be a hindrance to the Thessalonians financially. So Paul's eagerness to bring the gospel to the Thessalonians outweighed his need to make money in doing so. I mean, this would be the equivalent of like, if you could, like, I get a paycheck as a pastor. So as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm, I'm very convicted because I'm, I'm thinking what Paul really did here is they couldn't afford to give him a paycheck. So he said, you know what's more important? The gospel going forward. So paycheck or not, I'll make some money. I'll do other work so that I can make sure to bring the gospel to the Thessalonians. He was okay with sacrificing his popularity. It was a cost to himself. It was a, it was a financial, actual um, cost so that he wouldn't be a hindrance to the Thessalonians. So self Sacrifice is the first sign of genuine ministry in Christ. The second one that we see here is one that you might not expect. But Paul says that one sign of genuine ministry to others is motherly love. Look at 2.7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He's saying that the, mean, the manner in which he shared of himself there is the same way that a mother shares of herself with a nursing child. Like, apparently motherly love isn't just for mothers. What we're seeing here is that motherly love is an example set in how everyone should serve other people. So a sign of genuine ministry even for this man, Paul, is motherly love. Paul was not harsh, but he was gentle. And he was delighted to share with them. 
he was delighted to share with them. Um, the third one is fatherly integrity and encouragement. Look at 2.10. Fatherly integrity and encouragement. It says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Apparently, fathers set examples for everyone too. So motherly love isn't just limited to mothers, but it is something that is a great example set for all servants of Christ towards other people. And this fatherly integrity and encouragement is an example that is set for all servants toward other people in Christ. So what was the example that was set for them in those verses? What was the example set for them? If you were to paint a verbal picture of the example set, blameless conduct, conduct, yeah. It's this holiness, this righteousness, this blamelessness that they should see in fathers that will help them to know how to live lives of worthy service to others and to God. So fatherly integrity and encouragement and motherly love. Number four is a desire for fellowship. Now, the first one, self-sacrifice, everyone knows that's noble. No one's going to say, well, that's dumb. The second one, motherly love. The third one, fatherly integrity and encouragement. That's very relatable. That makes sense. The fourth sign of genuine ministry, according to this letter, is a desire for fellowship, which reworded means, I really want to be around the people of God. This is a harder one for a lot of people. I would ask those who struggle with this to raise their hands, but you would hate me and leave because you wouldn't want to be with the people of God anymore. 2.17 says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Look at 3.6. It says this. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And then in 10 it says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Why do you think a desire for fellowship makes ministry to others more genuine? Yeah. We stir one another up to love and good works. It's affirming. It's a self-sacrificing of your time. God's design. Yeah. 
Yeah, one of the things we've, the theme that we see is we're kind of moving at a little quicker speed through these pastoral epistles. Y'all have the ability to, I mean, I listened to 1 Thessalonians on my phone while I was making my coffee yesterday. So it's like, it doesn't take long to read through these. But one of the, every, what we pick up are some patterns and themes. Because you befriend them and love them and spend time with them without it seeming like an obligation or an ultimatum, it makes ministry genuine. The forward movement of the truth is intensely relational. God uses relationships to move his truth forward. He uses people being kind and loving and gentle and compassionate and encouraging to others while showing integrity themselves. I could almost weep as I share examples of people in this room who open their homes and love other people and genuinely want to be with God's people and be with those, not just God's people, but those who don't yet know the message as well. And that is, a, that is a holy, holy passion. It is a holy desire to want to have fellowship with others as a way of a sign of genuine ministry for those who are in Christ. So we have self-sacrifice, motherly love, fatherly integrity and encouragement, a desire for fellowship. And then the fifth one is joy. I, I found myself as I'm reading this out loud as opposed to some of the other books, I find in this one Sort of, I, I, I'm led to read maybe a little more emphatically because there's a clear sense of joy as Paul considers this church that he had the privilege of planting. Look at 2.19. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory. You are our joy. Now, it makes sense to say that to like your spouse, right? You are my joy. What about just random church member X? You are my joy. Mitch, you are my joy. That feels so weird, right? Doesn't it feel awkward to say that? Like, I mean, no one wants to make eye contact with me right now. If everyone kind of, don't say you're having your joy. That's weird. But that was the sense that he had. He had great joy in what was going on in the lives of these young believers. Why might we lack joy in ministry? And I say ministry because I'm a pastor, and yes, I get my paycheck through Crosspoint Fellowship, but I'm not the only one in here called to ministry. The entire church is called to ministry. We lead those who are readied for ministry, the saints who do the work of ministry. That's the church. So why might we have a lack of joy in our ministry to others? Because of others. That's an honest answer. Anyone want to hang out with Patrick tonight? Say that again. We can be hard to deal with. Yeah. Why else might there be a lack of joy in our ministry to others? Lack of apparent fruit. Yes. I keep telling them what to do and they don't do it. What else? Yeah, I'm too busy. People walk away. Yeah, that hurts. Selfishness. Yeah, I'd like to see a, a raise of hands. No. Yes. Comparison is the greatest thief of joy, because what do we do? What does that look like? Y'all should write that down. You can circle see that. That was good. Copyright it. Comparison is the greatest, what did you say? Thief of joy. 
How does that work? Usually causes a pity party. What, when we compare ourselves to one another, we, we don't generally default to, we have so much in common. We're so alike. We have the same problems. As I was reading through um, the notes for women's retreat this week, I kind of get the, the privilege of hearing what is going to be incredible teaching. And that, but every single person had a, a theme of how the comparison with other people just, just, is just lies that rob that joy. Because we think we're somehow far more different than we are alike. And from what we've seen in our studies, we find that unity is a gift that we have in Christ. And we're called to preserve it. Not allow our, the lie to be told and stealing the joy through comparison. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a tricky, there's a tricky thing about loving and caring deeply for people, but not caring too much about what they think about you. It's hard, and I don't think we will ever find that stride outside of staying in step with the Spirit. Were y'all gonna say something over here? All right. Anybody? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that, no, that's fitting too, because sometimes it can be just as simple as, I've got way more important stuff to do than talk, you know, with this joker. Yeah, there's a lack of genuine, if there's a lack of genuine belief and a lack of genuine concern for others because we have too great of a concern for ourselves or we're just too self-involved to get it over some of the lies that we believe, we will lack joy in ministry. And one of the signs of genuine ministry is joy. Number six is easy, and we're not going to talk too much about it because we already have prayer. I mean, every single letter is, he doesn't only pray for them, but he really wants them to know. In every letter we've looked at so far, he wants them to know that he's prayed for them. He, he shares the contents of his prayer, and it helps us to know how to pray as it is a sign of genuine ministry. And number seven is hope. The first six that we shared are all fed and fueled by this hope that he has for this little church in Thessalonica. 3.13 says, So that we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He genuinely believes that God's children will be established and firm with blameless hearts at the return of Christ. He doesn't have this pessimistic, bitter um, cynical view that so many of us have when we look at other people and we look at ourselves. When we begin to think that we can't change, and when we begin to think that others can't change, we have lost sight of our hope. Of course there's going to be a lack of joy. Of course you're not going to want to be around other people. Of course you're not going to be exhibiting this motherly and fatherly encouragement and, and integrity and, and gentleness and love. Uh, of course we're not going to want a fellowship because we, we completely lose sight of, of, um, of the reality that people can change, that we can change, and that others can change. And hope says you don't ever give up on people either. We don't treat people like projects, but we also don't give up on them because we believe that there can be change. Deborah has a note. He says, hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus leads to holiness in the present. 
And so that's why Paul has already led them to be considering the coming of the Lord, because that hope will cause holiness in them as they anticipate properly. So those are the seven signs of genuine ministry. Then there's eight signs of a Christian life and Paul's vision of his Christian life together. Because he's trying to tell them, so this is what um, your life should look like, and this is what your ministry to each other should look like, but here's what it looks like in our life together. And he shares some, some details on that front. And in 4.2, we see number one on the sign of a Christian life is live in order to please God. And 4.1-2, through two, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Do so more and more, more and more. Please Jesus. Live in order to please God. There's a note in, in the book that says, if we live only to please others, we will not live faithfully. It reminds me of in Colossians, look, um, the work heartily for the Lord and not for men. If we live only to please others, we will not live faithfully. So in our service to others, in our Christian life together, we have to live in order to please God. As we walk together, our goal isn't just to keep everybody happy, but to praise and, and please our Lord so that we might be holy. Holiness, if we put happiness above holiness, we become people pleasers and we care way too much about what people think. That doesn't mean, now remember, let, let's not forget what we just talked about with gentleness. So we can't be the kind of people that are like, I am holy, I love God, I don't care what you think, you idiot. We're not allowed to do that because we just talked about this motherly, nurturing, gentle love that we should have towards each other. So number one is live in order to please God. Number two, and he spends an interesting amount of time on this, is live a sexually holy life. In 4.3 it says this, For this is the will of God, your Lord Jesus, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he's pretty emphatic about this sexual purity, right? He says, if, if someone says that you're crazy for saying such a thing, they're not denying you, they're denying God. The situation in the ancient Greek world is one that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. We, we can, everyone in this room has seen a progression since the sexual revolution of the 60s, has seen, has everyone here has witnessed a sort of licentiousness, a, um, a lustfulness, a, a worldly sexual immorality that just kind of seems to be getting worse and worse. And so for us sitting here, it's kind of hard for us to imagine it being any worse than it is because we have devices everywhere we go, phones and tablets and and our, and our TVs at home, and we hear things on the radio. I mean, I've had to start being more careful on the radio because there's no telling what phrase or conversation you might run into just as you're scrolling through the channels. And I got kids that are always listening. 
when you're not talking. They're always listening when you're not talking. Uh, and when you are talking, they seem to not listen as much sometimes. But I believe they can change. Um, so, uh, but yeah, there, there's just so much room for this sexual immorality to, to, to weave its way and kind of weasel its way into our lives. So I think it's hard for anyone in here to imagine that it could be worse than what it is. Because everything is... The new Mr. Clean commercial is sexual. Like, we should grumble and we should kind of laugh at like, that is so ridiculous. It is a cleaning product. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable. And there's... Uh, it, it, one of the things that I pay attention to in advertising is how they are able to sexualize completely non-sexual things just to sell a product, just to peddle it. It is un unreal. Um, we could spend the whole rest of the time talking about that, but we won't. But there are, um, you won't find a shortage of examples. So I, all I do is say that to help us kind of climb into this context where it's hard for us to imagine it being much worse than it is with all of the, just the fleshly sexual morality that's a part of our culture. But listen to this. It has been said, well, it, it might have been, what, what he says is important to us as he talks about sexual purity but it might have been even more important for the ancient Greek world. It's been said that the only new virtue that Christianity gave the world was chastity. Think about that. You know, honesty, kindness, those are things that could have been appreciated by um, lost cultures. Now we know in Romans 14 that anything done outside of faith is sin, so you can you know, help the old lady cross the street and save all the orphans from the burning building. And if anything done outside of faith is sin, all those good deeds aren't faith and they aren't counted to you as faith. But what we see here is it's been said that the only new virtue that Christianity gave the world was chastity. It was a novel concept. To keep yourself sexually pure was a novel concept in this ancient Greek world. Sexual promiscuity was even more accepted and practiced in the pagan world than it is in our world today, believe it or not. Adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, pederasty, which is homosexuality with someone who is overage and someone who is underage, and many other sexual perversions were common. They weren't hidden. There, there was a certain amount of shame that should have been there that wasn't. So common that two millennia of Christian influence uh, may diminish our ability to comprehend it. So when we hear this, we're thinking, oh man, Paul had no idea what it would have been like today. The reality was, it may have been even worse sexually in this pagan, ancient Greek culture. So very important for the Thessalonians, live in order to please God and live a sexually holy life because those wouldn't have been, those may have been exclusive to them. They may have thought I can live a life for God and be sexually promiscuous. And so he needed to make this clear. The third thing is to live a life of brotherly love. In 4.9, it says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Every time they're doing something good, he doesn't see it as not necessary to talk about. He recounts the deeds of the Lord. He recounts their deeds as they are faithful in the Lord. And then he says, it's so good you're doing this. Do it more and more. Do more of it. And aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. 
The New Testament treats loving people beyond the bounds of our own church as normal. So he's not talking about just those who are in your little local church, but love those outside. Love those in, the, in other churches as you also engage the lost through evangelism. So um, it's a, that, that would have been a common thing to understand in this text. Number four is live a respectable life. Again, in 11 through 12, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work, work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So uh, why is the so that so important in these verses? There's a so that there. Why do y'all think it is so important in these verses? Yep, because we're a reflection of Christ or should be. How might the first part of the verse be taken wrongly if the so that is not there? Yeah, there's, it's hard to understand the meaning behind why he's saying what he's saying. And what might they take the meaning as without the so that? Yeah. Yeah, just dogmatic teaching. Yeah, it would just be pushing your morality onto others. But what might be seen here... Like, like, think of um, someone who isn't real big on that part about fellowshipping with others. I mean, I've heard Christians, like friends of mine, and I may have done it a time or two as well, read this and say, live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Oh, praise Jesus, we can do that. Uh, this is my verse that I go to. Uh, when I um, legitimize the fact that I don't love people and I don't want to be around them, right? This is the verse I go to. Live quietly. I'm going to live quietly. How about you guys live quietly? Shut it. I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to go work with my hands, and I'm going to mind my own affairs. And hey, while I'm minding my own affairs, how about you mind your own affairs? And we just stop there, and we proof text it as, well, apparently the Christian life is don't you meddle in other people's business, and don't let them meddle in yours. Just work quietly with your own hands. Mind your business. Make some money. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The so that keeps us from missing the point. The goal is to remove obstacles from the gospel being commended. We need the gospel to be commended with those other people that you desire fellowship with as you're moving forward with them and loving them. So we do work quietly with our hands and we do mind our own affairs, but not so that People will leave us alone and we leave them alone and we can be Christian hermits who don't have to deal with relationships because they're messy and frustrating, but it's so that you're removing obstacles that might get in the way of those people actually committing the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you about how much um, Jesus is first and foremost in my life. And then they look at your life and be like, well, it looks like a lot of other things are first and foremost. Yeah, mind your own affairs. I heard a, a quote today. It says, too many people um, spiritualize management decisions and manage spiritual decisions. And it's just kind of, it was an interesting quote. I, I, I don't know if I agree with it 100%, but because I think you can have some spiritual insight into management issues. But, but this, is, this is what this is. It's manage your own affairs. It's take care of your business. Like, pay your bills and stuff. Mow your yard. Clean your house. So when people come over for dinner, you can, they know that you love them enough to pick some stuff up. But not too clean because then we're pretentious, right? So I want to <laughs> be careful with that. So um, 
we got to be careful with that verse because I've heard it taken out of context a number of times. We also live a life awake to God. Um, and Live a life awake to God. In 5.4 it says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not, keep, not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put, upon, put on the breastplate of faith of lo- and love, and for the helmet of hope of salvation. So this isn't actually saying you're not allowed to sleep when you become a Christian. It's just saying we live a life of awakeness. We are attentive to what's going on, and we are attentive in such a manner that we're taking the return of Christ into account. Number six is live an encouraging life. We just read, or in 5.11, we'll look at it again. It says, therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing. This kind of life isn't only to specialized encouragers. Sometimes when we think of encouragement, we think about the encouragers will do that. Well, all of us are supposed to be encouraging. We're not supposed to seek to be maybe the kind of people who are discouraging or, or um, negative while the, the encouragers balance us out. Everyone should be an encourager. That is indicative of Christian life together. We seek to encourage one another. We look for what is good. I mentioned on Sunday, we're not just, the Christian community and the church is not just a place where everyone is affirmed, but that doesn't mean that you don't ever affirm people because you affirm what is good. You recount the deeds of the Lord, whatever is noble, good, um, commendable, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about these things, consider these things, speak these things. So we are encouragers. Interestingly, in the verses that follow, we care for your leaders and you encourage the faint-hearted. Look at 5.14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. This is the verse that jumps off of the page at me when I'm studying 1 Thessalonians. We urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. This jumps off of the page because oftentimes we think the only tool in the toolbox is a hammer, and we just admonish everybody. We admonish the idle, we admonish the faint-hearted, we admonish the weak. And it takes a staying in step with the Spirit and a Christ-like discernment to be able to look at someone and say, is this person idle, are they faint-hearted, or are they weak? Because it's not proper to encourage the idle. But it's also not proper to admonish the faint-hearted. And, it, and the helping the weak is someone who is actually unable to do something they need to do, so you're going to help them to do it. So you have to discern, are they unable or are they unwilling? You've got to take time with people. That full movement of truth is just intensely relational. I probably mess up on this more than anything. It's so hard, especially with my children. I did it with my daughter last night, and I had to apologize to her this morning. Last night, we had a soccer game that I paid for, that I drove to, and the dinner that I supplied for the whole family so we could all be there to support her. And she just didn't seem to care about losing. Well, it just flew all over me. Who wants to be a loser, Ella? And I don't think it was my best parenting moment, but it was, hey, that was ridiculous. Where, what are you doing? We're all here. We spent $43 at Fuddruckers. 
And we probably spent about at least $8 worth of gas. And we're all sitting here, and you look like you don't care. And I admonished her, because I was like, the, the point in joining this league was for you to get better. We've moved backwards. What, what happened? You, and then she's like, you're being mean. I'm like, I'm not being mean. You're being irrational. Stop being an irrational girl. Listen to me. <laughs> and I admonished her. Well, that night we get home, and I'm like, okay, let's talk. And I kept in with my same tone, and I listened to what she said, and I just kept with the tone. And then I went and sat and prayed and said, God, you know, I have no idea how to be a father to a 10-year-old emotional girl, apparently. So I pray that you would help me have some insight into what the heck just happened there. And pretty quickly, he granted the insight. He said, you just admonished the faint-hearted. She's tired. She's a 10-year-old girl who went to school all day, who then went to tutoring, who then got picked up and taken to a soccer game while she did homework in the car. <laughs> you just admonished the faint-hearted. She's just tired. Give her a break and quit acting like her entire college scholarship depends upon the stupid <laughs> soccer game on a Tuesday night. But it was like, man, right there. I, I didn't take the time to consider where she was. I wasn't quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. I was frustrated because I knew she could have done better. And I want her to do her best. I don't care if she wins, but don't, don't play like you don't care. But man, I let that get in the way. You know what the problem was? I was tired. I, I was faint-hearted, so I didn't care that she was. And this is such a, an important tool that we can put in our toolbox. Admonish the idle, not the faint-hearted and weak. Encourage the faint-hearted, not the idle and weak. Help the weak, not the faint-hearted and idle. It is a different approach depending on who you are engaging. Uh, she woke up this morning, and we sat at the table, and I said, baby, I need to talk to you for a minute. And she said, okay. And I could tell she thought she was in trouble again, like I hadn't gotten over the fact that she played bad. <laughs> and and uh, I told her, I just said, I said, uh, daddy was too hard on you last night, and I'm so sorry. I said, I prayed about it after you went to bed. God made it very clear to me uh, that I was way too hard on you. I want you to have fun. I want you to be a 10-year-old girl, and I want you to enjoy soccer. That's the whole point of what we're doing right now is to have fun with that. And, and I told her, I, said, I actually mentioned this first and said, I admonished you and I should have encouraged you. You were just tired and faint-hearted and I'm sorry. She said, okay, and gave me a hug and a kiss and we, I took her to school and that was that. And so, um, but I mean, this helps us so much, especially with our children, but also not just with our children. So um, the last couple of little details here are... Uh, Live a God-centered life and live a discerning life. First Thessalonians leaves us with a life-giving, hope-inspiring truth that Jesus is coming back. And it affects how we view ourselves and it affects how we view others. Let's pray. Number seven is live a life-centered, live a life-centered life. Live a God-centered life. And number eight is live a discerning life. And that's in 5, 19 through 22, where a discerning life tests everything with the word. We aren't called to necessarily take everyone at their word unless their word lines up with God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. We love you. Uh, we humble ourselves before you. Ask that you would continue to sanctify us, sanctify members of this church, sanctify members of the Christian community. 
We pray for those who are lost in our community, that we would be the kind of people that desire to be with them, to befriend them, to encourage them, and to be mindful of the fact that the forward movement of truth is intensely relational. Lord, as we consider these genuine signs of, of ministry and the self-sacrifice involved and this motherly love and fatherly integrity and encouragement and all these other things, and you consider how we're to live with others and um, to seek to please you and to live sexually pure lives, Lord, I, I, there's so many things here that are very, very tangible for us to consider, uh, but we know that none of it is possible without Christ. It's only fitting to encourage such, such things for those who are in Christ, and so we thank you for Christ. We thank you that we have redemption. We're thankful that we're not still aliens and strangers. And we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would use us as you see fit um, as ministers of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.